Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us Waiting for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's Happy Hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, and welcome to The Stages Podcast. I'm Peter Ayers, and it's super to have your company. Lindy Davies has worked as a director, actress, actor-trainer, and performance consultant, winning awards and nominations for performance, direction, and inspirational leadership. Her contributions to our cultural heritage and stages are remarkable and many. She was a founding member of La Mama in Melbourne, a company that forged a new wave of theatre writing and performance in Australian theatre. Her career has encompassed extensive work as an actor and director on stages and in theatres around the world. She has guided novice actors in training as head of the School of Drama at the Victorian College of the Arts and worked with greats like Julie Christie in the realisation of authentic performance. Lindy is wise, she is funny, she is tremendously engaging and passionate about her work. It was a privilege to share this conversation with Lindy Davies. Lindy Davies, thank you for giving me this hour of your time. Pleasure, Paul. Peter. Peter? I've been calling you Paul all afternoon. That's all right. What's there's a joke about that? What's that we call Peter? What is that joke about Peter and Paul? Yes, what was it? It, it was stealing from Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, yeah. But so, you can't, you, this is all off the record, excuse me. I this think it's fabulous. No. Can't we use this? <laughs> it's authentic. Podcasting is authentic. Yeah, but you don't want to appear like a complete idiot. You're not an idiot. No, but it, oh, yeah. I, I, people will reevaluate at the end of this hour, I promise. It's <laughs> all. Yeah. It's rude calling someone someone else's name. Oh no, I love it. I love I don't, it. You don't even remind me of Paul. Right, but it's the P, I suppose, and it's <laughs> it's the P. Maybe. What happens when you're in dotage? You just any P, you just go pick for a it. box. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Lynette, <laughs> um, <laughs> you're in the business of telling stories. Why are stories so vital to a civilization? Because without them, there's no perspective. We learn from stories, don't we? Yeah. Stories give us perspective because they give us the possibility of seeing something from someone else's point of view. And when you think about Aboriginal people, stories have created their world, haven't they? Mm. It's the foundation of their being. And those oral histories which are passed from generation Absolutely. to generation. And that's one of the things I think about often, that I was so glad that I had these great aunts who loved telling stories. It must have been the Welsh in them. Um, they were born in Australia, but their parents were Welsh. And that wonderful evolution of what life was coming to this country in the mid 19th century and people building things from there and those stories being passed down I, I love it and I miss that I miss that I miss. I don't think there's much oral history anymore except amongst Aboriginal people because they that's part of their world and their song lines etc Well I think of my grandparents also unless I ask questions there's no offering 
a story about how somebody met or what happened to Great Aunt Elsie on that particular day or how Uncle Henry died? There's not. And there's also the thing that made that possible to actually have a conversation with an older person if you chose to ask the questions. You had to be together. And I don't think that happens anymore. I don't think we... we uh, I think we're all sequestered off. I, th- I think the major thing I miss is conversation. Mm. I really miss conversation. And I miss conversation with people of other generations. At the moment, I'm in a bit of grief because someone who, to me, was a great mentor is dying. And, and her stories, the stories of an 88-year-old... Um, who'd been a kid growing up on the streets of Chicago, little Greek kid, and this is Olympia Dukakis, what she forged with her life, that gives me a huge perspective. It doesn't have to be my um, genealogy. It's just that extraordinary experience of being an, speaking to an eyewitness, mm. speaking to someone who was on the streets of Boston or wherever they might be, for her, it was Boston. Um, Do you remember the first story that you were told? I was told a story, and I've been trying to find the source of it ever since, about how the Welsh women, and this must have been centuries ago, with their black witch hats, to scare away an invading army dressed up and through the darkness of night appeared on a hill to appear as though there were an army <laughs> just a whole lot of women with costumes on now I've never been able to source the true genealogy of that but that was something that I remember vividly the Welsh witches and a great story that's stuck with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not much detail. The, the other stories I love have always been to do with... from the other generation, of what it was like to open a milliner's in Common Street. Or my great-aunt opened this restaurant in Common Street, um, which was a very famous restaurant called The Wattle, and she had all of the silver still from this restaurant. Or the, my favourite um, stories actually came from these Australian Greek friends of mine whose grandfather arrived in Australia with ten shillings and went on to build the Athenaeum and the Capitol Theatre and all these major landmarks. Brilliant. Yeah, so I love those stories. I love the stories of how this country began and the bravery of the people who tried to make things happen of course stories aren't possible without language exactly language is vital isn't it and it's vital to your line of work as a performer as a teacher as a communicator are we losing our language yes I think we are without a doubt I think we are because people have stopped reading, and that's the major place we get language. And also, they've stopped telling stories. So what happens is that we're in a situation where we're we're developing a lot of visual literacy, but we not we haven't got oral literacy. We haven't got literacy in relation to the sound of words hitting the body and what that does. Um, I get really worried about it because. I notice it in the paucity of language that people use. Um, I remember reading a book by George Steiner, which I really loved, called Language and Silence. And in it, he talked about how he asked a young man to describe the sunset he was seeing off the coast of California. And he said, that's terrific. Whereupon Steiner pulled that apart and said, well, you haven't spoken about the vermilion streaks. Or, and he then, in a beautiful way, articulated what he was seeing. And 
I, I suppose the reason why I'm upset about the death of language is because language makes us powerful. Our ability to articulate our point of view or describe our experience in the world of the tenderness we've felt, the anger we've felt, the confusion we've felt, all of those things, if we don't have the language, we end up dumb mm. to speak. What's that line from uh, Robert Graves? Children are dumb to say how hot the sun is. And it's that notion that until you have language, you can't describe what is happening to you. Then you have the other aspect too, where we seem to be in a really polarised world where people are no longer listening to each other and you can't have robust debate. Polarity is happening. There's no reaching a mid-ground and saying, OK, we're at a standoff here. Let's talk through the issues. What, what is it that would change your attitude to this? What shift? Yeah, like vaccine, for example. That is an example of something that's really polarising people. Um, one of the reasons I think it's polarising people is that the facts aren't necessarily being said, so people are ceasing to trust. So, for example, we find out from Norman Swan that Pfizer, which is the only vaccine that works with the variants, that Australia was offered that last June. Scott Morrison had the opportunity of getting Pfizer last June. He didn't do it. And he attempted to do it in November. Too late, she cried. So now, any of the words he says or uses mean nothing because he's talking in spin. And I think that's one of the major things that's happened is that because people talk in spin, which is corporate language, it only started in the 90s actually, we've lost our trust. And we've lost our feeling of power or our ability to change the world because we don't feel as though we're being listened to. Our eloquence. Yeah, and our eloquence is gone. Mm. Um, <clears throat> what about language in the theatre? I mean, you think of Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw, which were so eloquent and expressed things beautifully. Yeah, expressed things beautifully, but in a language that we don't necessarily connect with. And that's why I think P Pinter is a genius. Because what Pinter did was to, he understood that people had lost their eloquence. So the way he started writing was to go into pubs and listen to people going, oh, yeah, no, no, it was all, yeah, that's all right, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, do you think so? Yeah, it's all right. So he started looking at the rhythms and patterns and the fact that when people spoke, they'd lost their eloquence. And so he took that and his world became a world of language powerful language that went into a subterranean area because he'd understood that really it's the language beneath the words that is important. Now what happens with Bernard Shaw? Yes, eloquent, but better to read than see. Mm. Oscar Wilde, wonderful to read. The, I think the writer that's excited me most... Um, so the Irish, well, Beckett, of course, Pinter, yes. Um, uh, what's his name? Peter McDonough, Martin McDonough. When, when the Lenan trilogy happened and all of those plays of his started in the 90s, that was an extraordinary revolution because suddenly language was back. And the thing is that language changes people. Mm -hmm. Words do things to you. So if, uh, if, if writers lose their, their ability to use language, they lose their ability to imprint and change an audience. Because I think it's language that transforms us. And our prejudices that lie in certain language that make us resistant. For example, I've always been resistant to the word sin because I don't know what it means. So when everyone uses the word sin, they could be saying blah to me. 
But if I look up the... If, if for example, I'm playing Ranyevskaya and I have to say all my sins, as an actress, I couldn't do it because I don't know what sins are. But the dictionary is wonderful because it has a definition which says a sin is a transgression. And so, therefore, I have the chance of transforming the words into experience, which is, I think, the role of the actor. That's what we do. We transform, and we transform words into experience. And that is what impacts the audience. What about the way in which David Mamet uses words? I'm afraid I'm not a fan. I can't take my politics out of this. Oh, right. Fair enough. You know, I, yeah, fair I'm enough. afraid my politics are a very, very strong part of my work. Mm. Um, he's very deft, a wordsmith, but he's a misogynist, and I can't stand him. He's writing. In the content I've never of met his him. plays. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Never met him. I've met his daughter, but, mm. you know, that whole thing, I'm, I'm, I'm against... I think his words are dangerous. Yeah, because of what they perpetuate in terms. I'd be surprised, actually, if he could get a play on now, now that Time's Up has happened. Yeah. Um, I think that is the major way that we're going to see things. I mean, I'm amazed this government is still um, in Parliament House after what's happened over the past two weeks. Extraordinary. Yeah. After that man's attitude to Christine... Oh, I mean, so anyway... So, uh, yeah, language is incredibly important and what language does to us is incredibly important. And what I'm hoping with theatre is that we get back to the extraordinary strength of writing that one found with Madonna. Because um, that's where people get shifted. And also some of Tom Stoppard's stuff is really, truly wonderful. Yeah. Uh, See, it's Shakespeare, Chekhov, Pinter, for me, (laughs) and Madonna. See, I'm an old-fashioned girl. Um, Oh, but there's terrific range there. Um, The English, the Irish. Yep, absolutely. The Czech. Czech? With the Stoppard. Oh, yeah, Tom, of course. Now, Linda, you were born in Melbourne? I was. Which Uh, suburb? uh, Malvern. Malvern. Did you enjoy growing up in Melbourne? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, what What did your play consider consist of as a child? Well, everything changed when my father went to the country and bought a practice in the country. And so our play was being by the sea. The boys would go diving for flounders and oysters and spear the flounders, and then we'd make barbecues on the beach and hop on the yachts, and we were near Wilson's Promontory. So it was a halcyon days. So the play involved a rather wonderful attachment to nature. I wasn't, um, of course, in terms of my play, was I ever in a play? No, but I made the most sensational puppet plays, and I charged a fortune. How did you make the puppets? Were they soft puppets or toilet roll? (laughs) (laughs) And they made paper mache, and they made the little heads, and then you painted them. I I earned a fortune. People would have to come all the way down our street to the puppet play to see it going on. In terms of me being in plays, I didn't have that privilege until um, I was at university, really. Was it an artistic household? Were you attending the theatre or performances? In the country, what happened was that the Australian Elizabeth Beeson Theatre Trust used to bring various shows, but the thing was that my mother was a highly creative, remarkable human being. So the major thing of my childhood was spent watching my mother tap dance to the latest Broadway musical. And the biggest hit was that my aunt was living in New York and she sent my mother the first record of My Fair Lady. So there'd be My Fair Lady parties where I'd watch from the sidelines. Um, And I used to go to musicals when I was a kid. I don't think... I'm trying to remember my first experience of watching something and thinking, I'm watching something great. Oh, I know what it was. It was... um, uh, Grotowski's Apocalypse configurus, and then 
the next thing was um, Judy Dench in Twelfth Night. And then the next thing was seeing a Balinese play, The Baron. That's when I got my first feeling of what was great. Oh, no, actually, the first time before that was seeing Peter Cummins. This is at the Pram Factory, the first production of uh, A Stretch of the Imagination that we did there. And I thought, that's great. That's great theatre. But before that, I, I'd missed out, really. I'd missed out. I used to go to the, the MTC, uh, you know, when I was at university. We'd go there, but I was always had this longing that wasn't met until I saw the Peter Brooks Midsummer Night's Dream, Grotowski's Apocalypse Configurus, and uh, Trevor Nunn, John Barton's Twelfth Night, and um, Winter's Tale. And that's, so that's early 70s. And, oh no, Rex Cramphorn's production of The Tempest, which was remarkable, also early 70s. And that's when I thought, oh... This is something I really want to do. And that's when I wrote my letter to Peter Brook and my letter to Kristen Linklater and my letter to Jerzy Grotowski. This is while you are at university? No, this is when I'd left university. Right. Just after I'd left university. Because we'd been doing... Straight out of university, we formed the La Mama Experimental Theatre Company, which was made up of John Rommel, John Hawkes, Ponch Hawkes, myself... Um, Bill Garner, Graham Blundell, Kerry Dwyer, uh, <coughs> Meg Clancy, a whole bunch of us formed this company at La Mama under the auspices of Betty Burstall because she adored us and she wanted something there. Bruce Bence joined, Tony Taylor joined, John Dygan. We became, we started Evelyn Cray, Max Gillies. We started auditioning people to join us and then we found an old prime factory. Um, so the core body you'd, you'd met at university... Well, what happened was that there was a place in Cardigan in um, was it Cardigan Street or Drummond Street called Sixty Nine. It was a gallery, and the wonderful Lindsay Smith, who was a great theatre person, part of our group at, at Monash, said, "Look, I'm going to meet the Melbourne mob at Gallery Sixty Nine, and we all met there. So it's the Melbourne University mob was David Kendall, Melbourne University mob, and the Monash University mob." So we came together and said, what will we do? Because in a way we come together because of our attitude to the Vietnam War and we made the first street theatre for the moratoriums. That's how it started. And then it evolved into a place that was doing contemporary American pieces. And then Hibbert came back and Rommel started writing, so we started doing their stuff. And then we realised we needed a big th- bigger theatre so we'd wander through the streets of Carlton in the summer looking for places and Graham at that time was working at the MTC and he said I think there are costume stores available and it was an old pram factory so we made that into a theatre so that took up my life like we did the first production of Don's Party we did, and it was all that stuff going on but I, I got so dissatisfied with it I just couldn't Stand it, and the turning point was when um, we'd done Don's party, which I couldn't stand being in, and I didn't know why um, until much later. But at that stage, there's a character called Cooley, and he was the hero. So anyone who knows the play um, will understand why it was very hard to do it and have any pleasure out of it. Well, but he's quite a misogynist, isn't completely, he? and he was the and hero. Sexist and, yeah, yeah he, the absolute hero. Whereas when it was redone, and Graham said, you know, would you come to, we're going to do the 20th anniversary, I was living in London, and I'd, I couldn't come back to do it, but that was at the Opera House, I went and suddenly coolly played by Steve Bisley, wasn't the hero anymore. But anyway, so that's when the dissatisfaction happened, and then what happened was that one of the playwrights wrote a play called The Feet of Daniel Mannix that had no parts for women in it. And up until then... I'd had a good part in Dunn's party, actually. I think I had the best part in it. But did you Jen... play Kath? No, no, no. I played Jenny, who had a migraine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous character. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. I loved her. And on the and, opening and night... And stands aground at the end. On the opening night, all of the people who were at the original Dunn's party were there, 
And I remember this darling woman coming up to me and saying, I'm Jenny, you're playing me. <laughs> it was the first night of the play. Anyway, so... I'd seen this great work. I'd seen Rex Cramphorn's work. I'd seen Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream. I'd seen The Twelfth Night. I thought, I'd need to do something like this. And I'd seen wonderful performances at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Like I remember a production of Three Sisters that was very special. George Ogilvie's work, really special. But... I think I'm the only person in Australia or in Melbourne who has never worked at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Have you never? No, because my life took a different... Because uh, I became part of Rex's company. And I was offered... one. John Simon offered me a wonderful thing where I could have played three great roles. But Rex was doing uh, Two Noble Kinsmen. Um, so I said, all right, I'll do that because I believe so much in Rex's work. And then he changed his mind and we did Anthony and Cleopatra instead. So there was a payoff for me. Yeah. You gave your Cleopatra, of course. Yeah. Everybody speaks so favourably of Rex. I've, I've never heard anybody say a, well, he was a, a bad word. Well, a very special and, visionary. Yeah, and say what a, a wonderful practitioner it was. No, it was extraordinary. It was just that he was beyond his time. Right. And people didn't... Uh, he was a man of great integrity, a man of great intellect. Um, and a truly... A, a true scholar uh, who, if he hadn't got sick, I think time would have caught up with him and he'd be appreciated in the way he needed to be. Writing to Peter Brook and those folk... Did you receive a response? Yes, I did, and I ended up there. And that changed my life. Because I was there when the company was prepared... Uh, they were rehearsing Ubi and um, ten actors internationally were selected, and there was a three-month stage or workshop happening. So the company were... Um, Rehearsing Uburwa and starting to prepare the Mahabharata. And Yoshi Oida had said that what he wanted was to, because they're doing an Asian masterpiece, that he thought the actors should work with Japanese masters. So these Japanese masters came to Paris, and in the morning we'd work with the masters, and the company would rehearse, and in the afternoon we'd walk with Brooke and the actors at work of the Masters. And the major impact on me was the work of a Buddhist monk, and that's where everything changed. He introduced you to stillness. Mm. And the infinite, I suppose. Um, it was extraordinary. It was just extraordinary. Um, he was... I don't know if you've ever seen My Dinner with Andre, but in My Dinner with Andre, Andre Gregory talks to Wallace Shawn about how he was going to make a, a film of the little prince and he was going to have Shuko as the little prince and Shuko was the Buddhist monk and he looked like a little prince. He was a really special person. Um, what, what, the two things happened. It was working with the, the, the Japanese masters where... Meditation was at the heart of it and preparing the space and preparing yourself. That's why when I do an intensive or a rehearsal, there's the washing of the floor, which is the preparation for the work. And um, that was all wonderful, but the major thing was working with Brooke, where he'd set a provocation. The most terrifying experience I've had as an actor, really, was working in front of him. Uh, and because said, you didn't want to disappoint him, or oh, this this was a god, yes. <laughs> a god <laughs> sitting on the bench with his piercing blue eyes and his visionary, and him, my funny little Aussie person. And um, but the experience introduced me to what had been meant 
because all he did was set a provocation. And, and, and this is a major thing that I, I have since done, um, where I work very, very simply. Um, uh, and the provocation for me that day was clear, obscure, light and dark. And the idea was to go into the space and explore that, into an empty space and explore that, with another actor. Thrilling. Improvising a lot of the content? The language? No, no language. No, right. no language at all. It okay. was in silence. And that's thrilling. And that's when I experienced what Shuko meant. And that's when I experienced what it was to be in the moment because there was no other place to be. And that's why when I started my work, even though I was obsessed with language, it took me ages to actually get to the point where I got actors to speak because I think speaking is difficult and I think that um, the, this process that I've developed over 40 years happened because I've got very bad stage fright and I, I've got to find my way back. So the first thing was Brooke, the se- second thing was Kristen Linklater and her notion of the impulse to speak. So I was working with the impulse to work, to, to walk, to stand, to sit and the impulse to speak, which meant bypassing the rational self. So that all happened as a result of that moment working in front of Brooke, where I understood that extraordinary thing of where time, you're in the unending moment, and you are replete, and the air is humming, and something magic happens that has nothing to do with you at all. All you have to do is get out of the way. Is acting a mysterious process? Yes. And is you can't it, teach anyone. I'm not an acting teacher. I've right. never been an acting teacher. Right. Ever. So what do you call yourself? You're a, a guide? A guide's a good word. Oh. Um, uh, a guide facilitator? I mean, the problem is that when I say that, it sounds pretentious. Um, but one of the things about stage fright and working with bad directors that I came out was was a, an, a, an absolute um, obsession about enabling actors to find the gift of autonomy so that they could become absolutely aware of when they were in the centre of things and not dependent on someone on the outside telling them. And so one of the things when I was, you know, on my adventure the whole Brook time and in New York, I was at NYU for a while, I really didn't like what was happening. This is 1978. I really didn't like what I saw in American teaching, all of these gurus and this thing about the guru and breaking people down. I thought, oh, my God, that's just awful. And so I've always been anti-guru and anti being the person with the power. So I'd say most of my work has been spent getting actors to get in touch instinctively with when they're in the centre of what they're doing. I think that's my job. So I think my job is to hold the space so they can find that and alter their state. So I've developed many ways, exercises... It's not a word I use. I'd call them studies or etudes, things where people can go into a space and explore by themselves until they reach that point of kinesthetic connection. So they start to understand what it is within them. The sort of thing I think that people understand when they're meditating or when they're running or when they're cooking. You know, when you're in the flow and you're cooking and time means nothing. Some people find it when they're gardening. I don't. Um, (laughs) But it's that whole thing. I think that's what I do. I hold the space so people can get in touch with their own power and the infinite imagination that they have, as long as they don't let the rational mind go. I'd, I'd say the most revolutionary thing I do, which... It's taken 40 years for people to actually start to see actually that might be important, is I never, ever talk about how. So the focus is always of finding out who and how do we find that out. 
through the language because it's all in the language but your experience of being Vishinan is going to be quite different to that person's experience of being Vishinan even though you're on the same pathway because the complexity and greatness of you is going to be quite different in nuance to that other person well we, we bring different lived experiences yes exactly yeah. exactly with acting repetition comes to the fore a lot in the preparation of a role and also if it's a long run you're doing the same thing every night eight times a week what does repetition do to an actor can it be a hindrance or is it see I, one of the things I've never understood I can't understand why people keep acting if they're repeating because I think the mastery of our work lies in our ability to play the moment that means you're never repeating and it doesn't mean that you're being impulsive or chaotic or capricious because there's a score that you're following but you're playing the moment now the degree of difficulty that's required to stay in the moment is enormous so there's never any chance of getting bored or getting stale because every night you're having to play the moment. It's exhilarating. It's, you know, you're on a tightrope. Having to play the moment. Hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing of... I th- I'd say the biggest thing it takes me to begin working with an actor is to get rid of two things. Their obsession with working on how to do something and their obsession with premeditation. And once I've eliminated that from their being, the work takes off and is infinite and miraculous because there are no limitations to it at all. Some actors like to come in loaded with the text. They've learnt it already. That's okay if they haven't. See, the one thing you can't change, unfortunately you can't change it, and I worked with an actor once who learned the whole script before he came in and therefore the script was the same every single night and every single moment of rehearsal and he could never be changed by anything that was said to him and there's nothing worse than acting opposite someone who's speaking in patterns and you can't eliminate them because what it is, and this is why a lot of people when they're working with me, they don't speak on voice for a long time, is that a lot of people, once they hear it, they can't forget what they've heard. So what the, all they're doing is repeating the cadence, the pattern, the rhythm, uh, rather than finding, out, finding that impulse to speak. And the example I give always, because everyone's had it, is that it's as essential as if you think of the very first time you said to someone, I love you. And all of the thing that went on in you before you said it, and the, you missed the wave, you go, oh God, I can't. And that is the process of the act. The act has to take the words off the page and process them and bring them into experience. And that takes time. What I did because I was so worried about actors getting patterning, was that uh, I did a production of Marasad around about 1976 where the whole script was written on the wall and so the actors had the script up there. Um, that meant they also could be free f- physically. I've done that ever since, only I, pro- I was able to project, move on to um, overhead projectors now, of course, I use PowerPoint. But... That's the idea of the scripts there, so you don't have to do that and have your head buried in a book. And you've got access to it. And you can find out where you need to be in order to speak. Maybe I can't speak to you unless I'm like that, you know? Yes. The head in the book. There's nothing worse, is it? And it's what society's doing now, you know, with our head and phones or technology. It is, isn't it? Mm. It prevents any sort of communication. It does, absolutely. Authenticity. And that's heartbreaking. But that's why it's so good, actually, you've got podcasts, because that stops them going down. That's right. It's all just fed into the ears. 
So who are the actors you admire, Lindy? Who, who are the great technicians? Well, I don't see them as technicians. I tend not to like actors who are technicians. Because right. you um, can see them perform. Yeah, and yeah. you know what they're going to do. And yeah. I think, oh, look, can I go home now? I know it's going to happen. And the great actors, the people I've been most shifted by in my life have been Manessa Redgrave, like, miraculous. Judy Dench, miraculous. The beautiful, wonderful Helen McCrory who died. Miraculous. Um, Kate, dear Kate Blanchett. Erin um, Jean, novel. Um, ben Wishaw, Samantha Morton, um, many, many people. But uh, the thing that's significant, of course, is that I've mentioned people who are in their 80s, a lot of them, because when you say, what is your idea of greatness, it's the people who affected you when you're a young person. Yeah. And then through the years... Um, that's changed. Glenda Jackson was wonderful. I saw her Leah. That was magnificent. Said, and that was a return to the stage after a yeah. hiatus of many decades. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw her do uh, scenes from an execution at the Donmar, at the Almeida in 1989, which was the last performance she did before becoming a parliamentarian. Uh, but what happened with her I found interesting because she had this fabulous career in politics and I don't know if you ever saw a maiden speech when she was talking about how Thatcher had made all the doorsteps of England into lavatories. Um, She was a great um, orator. But what had happened, and this is why I think it was so great she went into politics, is her work had started being patterned. It had started... The scenes from an execution was fine because it's hard with Howard Barker to impose anything on him. But before that, she started to... And that's what happens to actors. In answer to your question about repetition, the most important thing for an actor is to have a director um, who keeps their eye on you and stops you going into habits. (laughs) Tell me about working with the great Julie Christie. Ah. She's a miracle of a person. She's extraordinary. Yeah. And a career of great longevity also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, well, so, well, that was life-changing too, because I happened to be in India. I was doing a, a conference on new theatre where I'd gone um, with a new work that I was working on. And um, I, I had a big aversion to Indian food. I'm not very good at it. And I'd returned to Delhi from Bhopal where we were to stay at, um, I can't remember the name of the Imperial, I think it was. Very Raj place, because I wanted to have real food. And there came a telephone call for me there. And that was Julie Christie. And I was on my way to London, as it turned out, uh, because I was going to see a dear friend of mine there. And I'd been stuck in Australia for about eight, eight years, so I was very edgy. But I had $100 on my bank card and I had this ticket that we'd been paid for with this new theatre workshop I was doing in India, which was, at that stage, you could turn into a round-the-world ticket. Anyway, she rang me and she said, "Would you? I hear you're coming to London, would you work with me on a film? And I said, no. And she said, well, we don't have to talk about it. You can talk about that when you come. But the reason why I said no is very particular. It was because... Uh, I'd been working as an actor for a long time. I had a stint teaching in the 70s, which we've alluded to. Um, And I went to the VCA till 82, then joined Rex's company. And I didn't actually want to teach or be a helper. I was loving being an actor again and a director because I'd started directing. And I just didn't want to help anyone. (laughs) And... uh, Anyway, it turned out to be the best decision I didn't make because I got there and because she is a remarkable human being, such wisdom and insight that she is, of course I said yes. And what was wonderful about that was that it gave me the opportunity to 
transform my process into a one-to-one thing because up until then it had been with you know companies of people um, but now I had to communicate to this person how to do my process uh, one-to-one and it was a wonderful thing because her view of the world is so particular she's a woman of great integrity and vision and compassion and um, her career has been made out of decisions based on the politics of things um, so there have been many like she was offered out of Africa but she said no because she disagreed with the film script in terms of the original book uh, she's done wonderful things uh, she's um, and she's done very obscure films too because she's believed in uh, you know, a South American 65-year-old woman director who hasn't directed before. I mean, she's a miracle person, yeah. yeah. And the only thing I feel sad about was that she decided she wanted to stop doing it about six years ago. And there have been so many... That was eight years ago, actually. There have been so many overtures to her, particularly one film which I think would have been remarkable but um, it's not to be you've worked with her in film uh, but also on stage mm-hmm. is there a different process in acting film and, and acting in the theatre I don't think so at all I get so confused by this thing and this prejudice that a lot of film actors have about theatre actors film directors have about theatre actors I don't understand it because all you're doing is shifting your circle of attention. So if I'm working on stage in a 1,200-seat auditorium, my circle of attention goes around the people in the very top sphere. Up there, I'm working with a camera. It's here. It's the same process, exactly. And that's why great theatre actors like Anthony Hopkins, his performance in The Father. My God, why didn't I mention that before? Sublime. Ultimately, it's about calibration of the space. Yeah. Are you performing with him? Mm. Absolutely. And it's about your energy field. Where you expand your energy field to. I saw the father on stage in New York with Frank Langella. Oh, you lucky thing. Extraordinary play. And I can't, I can't wait to see it on film. Yeah. Mm. But what... The magic of the theatre, with the illusion that you can create, the, the, the magic is... Um, There's nothing like it. There's nothing, nothing like it. And, you know, and the, thing about, the thing about film that's so challenging is how empty it is. Mm. <coughs> Really, and how exhausting it is. Classical theatre texts, whether mm. they be Greek, Shakespeare, mm. whatever, can they all withstand a contemporary interpretation? Yeah, I think so. Like it's to do with the vision. Uh, like for example, one of my favourite pieces of theatre was a piece two of my graduates adapted. Simon Stone and Chris Ryan did an adaptation, and Mark Leonard Winter was involved too, of Thyestes. Remarkable work it was, a remarkable work. And just taking the themes that are so still pertinent at this moment about avarice and cruelty and ambition, um, I think one can. I don't like doing things like putting Twelfth Night in an Edwardian context. All that stuff. Yes. I've never been able to cope with that stuff because it's never made any sense to me. It's never made any sense. There was a famous production of Richard III I saw with uh, um, Alec McCallum and um, it was had the fascist imprimatur on it. It just didn't work. Yeah, but is, it, is, that, is that, Peter, is that something that's annoyed you over the years, seeing Let's Set Macbeth in a spa stuff? Very much so, because you say, <laughs> why? How does it serve the beats? Yeah, what are you doing? 
What makes a good actor? Humility. I think humility and um, a devotion to uh, the disciplines required. So people who realise that they need to have physical fluency, emotional fluency and vocal fluency. Like when I was doing... um, This is a good example. See, one of the things that's very different here to working in other places, often here... Australians have a very strange attitude to training and skills and things, whereas Americans and the English tend not to. So, for example, when Kenneth Branagh was directing Hamlet and Julie was to play Gertrude, Julie hadn't done Shakespeare since she was at theatre school, so we started from the beginning. Completely dedicated herself to the pentameter, completely dedicated herself to alliteration antithesis, all of the things you need to do to actually shape the work. And um, I admire that enormously. And you can see it. You can see it when an actor is aware of that. One of the big mistakes a lot of people say is that, oh, you don't need an actor's voice on film. Yes, you do. It's... Anthony Hopkins' voice that absolutely (laughs) changes your state when you're watching The Father because he's connected. There's that connection to centre. Same with Judi Dench, always connection to centre. And I think any young actor, if they want to have a look at what discipline is, they ought to take out the John Barton playing Shakespeare tapes and see all the great actors working with John Barton to enhance their art form. And smoking in the rehearsal room. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Probably having vodka and a yeah. glass of red as well. <laughs> so therefore, you know, you talk about Anthony Hopkins and Judy Dench. Therefore, does age make for a better actor? One's lived life experience, one's palette to draw upon. I'd like to say yes to that, but I think it's a bit more complicated because I think, I know many young actors who I've worked with, particularly in the work I've been doing in Canada, whose, I think you're right that the complexity of one's life experience is essential, but I've worked with Ethiopian refugees in Canada who are in their 20s and 30s and their work is exquisite because of that very factor that you're mentioning. It's to do with life experience, not necessarily age. Um, About seeing Glenda Jackson playing Leah, you saw life from that perspective. And that's why I can't get over this thing in Australia where they cast people in their 50s as people in their 70s or people in their 40s as people in their 70s. I don't get it. Is the industry ageist? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, deeply. Deeply, deeply, unfortunately, yeah. Very. Let me share a quote of yours from 2003. It's hard being human. I actually think life's difficult. And theatre makes it easier because it gives people the chance to experience the fact that they aren't alone. Yeah. I think that's true. Very true, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. You see, I see acting as the art of compassion. And I think that so many people suffer and aren't in an expi- ple- a situation where they can actually talk about it or have it understood And if you see a great work with great actors that's dealing with something that you're dealing with, I think it's very healing. That's why I believe that theatre is and can be a place of catharsis for... It's a lovely lovely communion. Yeah, it is. There's nothing more exquisite. That's why I miss it. I miss it very, very much. Um... And I miss being in a theatre with an audience all in the same place. 
that's what I loved about um, what I experienced with the productions I did in England. I did feel that the audiences were all in the same place. I, I felt that they were there because they loved Ibsen or Pinter or they were there for that reason. Uh, they weren't there for a sponsor's night or yeah. because it was part of their friends, you know, social gatherings. And that's I, I love that when that's operating. I saw a fabulous production um, with um, Janet Teer on Broadway the year before last. I think it was 2018. Maybe it was 19. Uh, her playing... Uh, Sarah Bernhardt, fabulous. She was, she's such a magnificent actress. She's really something else. And um, so, too, is Harriet Walter. There, there are a lot of great women in that age, at that age range. Um, and that experience of being in a New York audience watching Virtuosity was wonderful. Because you realise they're used to seeing the best. They're used to saving up to make sure they can see the best. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think the major thing during the pandemic is the grief we all feel, see the people, that we've lost our work, and you know, we've got government that doesn't care about the arts at all, and certainly doesn't care about us because none of us were given any way to get through it. Um, and it's, I just want there to be a renaissance here. Again, there was a renaissance when my mob came out, when they all came out around about 2007, 2008, and they started doing new work everywhere and fabulous things started happening. This is your graduates from VCA? VCA, yeah. yeah. Um, and they really contributed wonderful things. Like Erin Jean's fantastic um, picture of Dorian Gray. You know, that... I suppose my vision when I went to the VCA, people said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to create sort of an actor that Peter Brook has. And what they can do is that they can make work and they can do the classics. So that was the training I created with these wonderful teachers that I had. And that's what they're all doing. They're working in that metier where they're taking a classic um, and transforming it into a contemporary piece. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But I just want that to continue in some way. Um, but it can't unless a government gives funding. And this whole thing that came from the 80s about the economic imperative. If you said that in America, they'd think you were crazy. Hello, we need theatre, therefore we're going to create foundations and... We're going to give money. People don't give money here to keep our arts going. They do in the visual arts a bit more, but it's as though we haven't woken up to the fact that as a civilization, we won't evolve unless language, literacy, the spoken word are cherished. So that people don't have to be embarrassed to say they're an actor. Lindy, thank you. Um, this has been a masterclass of an hour. <laughs> of learning people's names. No, no. That's, um, <laughs> what, what, do you remember? <laughs> yes, Peter. Excellent, excellent. No, thank you so much. Um, I, I know the listeners are going to be thrilled with this, this conversation. Did we cover everything? I don't know. Anything I'd, else you need to say? Anything else I need to say? Yeah, there is actually. Oh, go ahead. I just think it would be great if we all took responsibility for making sure that theatre as an art form evolved here. And the way to do that is not to give up on it. So as audience members, we should turn up. As benefactors, we should give money to people who can't afford to turn up. And we should support lovingly and infinitely the development of theatre in this country.
and writing in this country. We need good writing. We need a few Martin McDonough's to appear from the Billabongs. McMurray. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Lindy. Pleasure. Thank you. You can discover more about Lindy's extensive work and practice at lindydavies.com. I could have sat with Lindy for a few more hours. Her insight into the work of the actor is so illuminating and she has such a history as one of this country's vital artists. My guest today, Lindy Davies. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Ayers. Please take some time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Wooshka, Spotify or wherever you find your podcast listening. Check out the Stages website too at www.stagespodcast.com.au. Thanks for joining us. I'll catch you next time.